All right, if you'll please take your Bibles with me and turn to Revelation chapter 2. I want to read verses 18 through 29 with you. This is the letter to the church in Thyatira. It is the fourth of the seven letters in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. It's the longest of the letters. In some ways, it's the most uh, complicated and confrontative of all the letters. There's some very hopeful things. There's some very hard things. And so uh, we, in particular, need the Lord's help to hear what he has to say to the churches today. So let me read this message or, or this letter, and then I will pray, and we'll get into the message for today. This is the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, um, excuse me, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And let's pray that the Lord would help us to do that even now. Our Father, we thank you for being a God who speaks, and we thank you for the word that you spoke to the church of Thyatira, a word that you have been speaking to your church throughout the centuries and uh, in all the world, in a word that you are about to speak now to this church in Elk River, Minnesota. Lord, we pray that you'd give us years to hear what you have to say to that ancient church. I, I pray for help just to understand the things that you had to say to them. And then I pray, Father, that you'll give us ears to hear the things that you're saying to all the churches throughout the world and across time. I pray that you'd give us ears to hear what you're saying to this particular local church here in Elk River, Glory of Christ Fellowship. And I pray that you would give each of us as individuals ears to hear what you would say to us as individuals. Lord, you have many encouraging and difficult things to say to us today, and we particularly need your help. So please, by your Spirit, be near to us. Please, by your Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to heed and power to obey the things that you have to say to us. And Lord, for how you have worked in your church over 20 centuries now, and for how you will work in this church today through this letter, we give you our thanks and praise in the great and gracious name of Jesus Christ. 
Amen. Because Jesus loves his people, he speaks to his people like a father who wants to communicate his heart and let his family know what he's thinking about many things and what he thinks about them. Uh, Jesus speaks to us. And because this is his heart, because this is the nature of his speech, particularly to his family, we would do well to listen well to the things that he has to say. Because Jesus loves his people, he encourages us. He, he, he encourages his people. He builds us up. He brings to our attention the fruit that he sees in our lives. Fruit that he caused to come about in us, but fruit that he essentially praises us for. He, he affirms us. He, he builds us up. As I was meditating on, on this uh, th- this last week, I, I thought of so many times when Rachel, our daughter, was young, and when she would do things that were just so pleasing to Kim and I, I, I could just remember time and time again getting on my knees and looking her right in the eyes, making sure I had her attention and just affirming her, honey, I'm proud of you. I'm so glad about what you did and just keep doing that kind of thing. Keep showing your passion. Keep caring for people, whatever the, the thing was. I, I was just affirming her. I, I was not playing a psychological game with her. I was letting her know that her father noticed. I was letting her know that her father valued her. I was letting her know that her, her father was blessed by what he saw in her. I, I was letting her know that her father wanted her to keep walking in that way. And I think this is the heart of Jesus toward the church when he encourages us. And so we need to hear his encouragement today. We need to take it to heart because this is what he's trying to do. He affirms us because he, because he loves us. And this is such an act of grace because he's personally responsible for everything commendable in our lives, Right? So it's pretty stunning that he would then essentially get on his knees and look in our eyes and affirm us for the things that he does in us. But that's his heart. And because Jesus loves his people, he will also add to his encouragement rebuke. His rebukes are sometimes harsh. At least they seem harsh. They're hard to hear. They're penetrating. They're convicting. They can be life-changing. They, they can at times be depressing. They can be paralyzing because sometimes they're very serious and sometimes they cause us to question, that does he really love me or what does he really think about me or will I ever really measure up? But we need to understand from the outset that as hard as it will be to hear the rebukes that the Lord has for us today, that his rebuke is actually a sign of his love. It says in Hebrews chapter 12 that the Lord only disciplines those he loves. And in fact, he'll say that to one of the churches in chapter 3. He only disciplines those who he receives as children. And, And if we don't receive the discipline of the Lord at some point, it means that we actually don't belong to him. It means that we're not his children. The word discipline in Greek is actually built off the word for parent. So we ought to hear this word as parenting. And the rebuke of the Lord is an aspect of his discipline in our lives. It's an aspect of of his parenting in our lives. So we need to understand, beloved, that even when he rebukes us, he's expressing his love to us. Even when he rebukes us, he's trying to purify us, that he might build us up and equip us for the work he has for us to do in this world. Beloved, because he loves us, Jesus speaks to us. And we would do well, excuse me, to listen well to the things that he has to say to us today. Some 20 centuries ago, the Lord spoke some words of encouragement and of rebuke to our sister church in Thyatira in the uh, ancient province of Asia Minor. 
those encouragements were um, very upbuilding to the church and the rebukes were very purifying for the church. And as the uh, ongoing eternal king priest of the church who is still walking among the lampstands and still tending the lampstands that we might shine our light as bright as possible for the glory of God and the blessing of the nations and the joy of our souls, Jesus is still speaking these words of encouragement and rebuke to us today. So again, may we have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May we remember the call of John in chapter 1, verse 3, when he said, Blessed are those who read aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep the things that are written in it, for the time is near. Beloved, I, I think we can see in, a, in a, a time of history like we're enduring right now that this whole world could crash down in a heartbeat and everything could come to, in, to an end faster than we probably think it could. Uh, we, we might find ourselves in an instant at the judgment seat of Jesus and we want to be ready for that day, don't we? The, the time is near. I, I don't know exactly when. I would never try to guess when. I think that's a vain exercise. But what I know is that the time is near. What I know is that Jesus is coming again. And what I know is that he wants his bride to be prepared. He wants us to persevere, that we might be purified in his presence. That's what he's up to. And so I say again now for the third time, may we have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches today. The city of Thyatira was located about 40 miles to the southeast of Pergamum. It was located in a river valley. It was never a large city. It was never a great city. It was never a famous city. There was nothing particularly notable about that city at that time or even in this time. If you were to go to Ephesus or Smyrna or Pergamum, the three cities we've looked at so far, you would see a lot of archaeological finds. You would see things there that even to this day are very interesting. But if you were to go to the ancient city of Thyatira, you wouldn't find much. There's a few columns on the ground. There's a few footprints of buildings over here, but that's about it. It, it wasn't a, an, an unimportant city, but it was definitely not a glorious city then, and it's definitely not a, a, a glorious city now, at least the ancient, um, the, the remains of the city. The ancient name Thyatira means something like the fortress of Thya, and its modern name, Akisar, actually means White Castle. So imagine that. If you ever find yourself in Turkey and you're uh, really wanting a horrible hamburger, just go over to Akisar. Go over to ancient Thyatira where you'll find White Castle. Um, but that city, as ignoble as it was, as inglorious as it was, it was actually surrounded by some very rich natural resources. It was located in a river valley. And so even though it was sort of vulnerable to a military attack, it was, it was rich in natural resources, I said. And therefore it became a wealthy place, and they used that wealth in part to protect themselves. So they were, in fact, uh, attacked time and time again over the centuries. But because they were wealthy, they were basically able to take care of themselves, and they were basically able to prosper financially. So when you think Thyatira, think manufacturing, when you think Thyatira, think uh, blue collar. When you think Thyatira, think you know fairly wealthy, but not particularly glorious at all. In fact, that area was such a, a, a center for manufacturing that there are ancient inscriptions and literary references to the city that are still extant today that mention uh, many trade guilds that were there. There were guilds working in wool, in linen, in leather, in bronze, in armor 
in dye, in tanning, in pottery, and even in baking. In fact, there were more trade guilds in the city of Thyatira per capita than in any other city in the Roman Empire, and that's that's really saying something. So again, when you think Thyatira, you wouldn't be that far off to think of a city like Elk River that's basically a, a blue-collar town with a lot of light manufacturing, a lot of just hard-working people, people who you know have a, a fair amount of resources but who live in a city that's not very impressive, that's not outwardly glorious, that's not famous, and that's never going to be famous. It was just a normal city, like most cities in the world. The church in that city was probably founded by a guild woman named Lydia, who became a Christian under the preaching of the Apostle Paul. You, rem- you may remember her from Acts chapter 16. She was probably on a business trip to the nearby city of Philippi, which was a little to the north and to the west of her hometown. And there she encountered Paul, she encountered Luke, and she encountered their companions as they had gone out on the Sabbath day uh, by a river near Philippi to worship the Lord and to pray. There was a place of prayer there, so they thought, well, we'll go out there and seek the Lord, and who knows, maybe we'll get a chance to preach the gospel. And they did just that. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 16 that before they met her, uh, Lydia was already a worshiper of God. This probably means that she had heard of the God of the Old Testament uh, through the Jewish community in Thyatira, in Philippi, wherever she had traveled in her life. And she probably had some measure of faith in this God. If she didn't know something specific about the God of the Bible, though, she had a heart after the true God. You know, there are people in the world that are worshiping false gods that, that in their heart of hearts, they want to worship the true God. They just don't know how to know him. And I don't know the particular of Lydia's life. I just know that she was a God-fearing woman. I just know that she was a worshiper of God. She was a woman who was truly seeking God. And so by the river that day, when she heard Paul preaching the gospel, Luke writes in Acts chapter 16 that the Lord opened her heart so that she believed and when she believed in the Lord, apparently uh, the, the, at least those members of her household who were there in Philippi with her, the Lord also opened their hearts and they all believed together. They all put their faith in Jesus together. Can you imagine a moment like that? An entire household coming to faith in Christ at once. And so they were baptized right there in the river outside the city of Philippi. And we're just guessing now because we don't have a lot of details, but it does seem to most scholars that uh, what probably happened is that at some point Lydia and at least some members of her household traveled back to Thyatira where they were from and where their main business was. And probably they were at least the, at least they made up the core of the church that was founded in that city. And now uh, John is writing to that same church some decades later, a church that in fact we know for a fact existed for centuries of time. We have records of this church uh, being actively involved in gospel work up into the 400s AD, probably beyond that. I just didn't do research beyond the 400s, but this became a very active church. It began with the gospel being preached to one person, or at least maybe we could say a group of people down by a river in the city of Philippi, and it grew into a church that lasted for centuries, beloved. Just think of that. Just take a second and think about what God might do with Glory of Christ Fellowship, for example. I remember I kind of stretched the faith of some of you a while back when I talked about looking forward to our 100th anniversary. Well, what if God gives this church a 500th anniversary? I don't know the way our our world is going right now. We might even not even have a 15th anniversary. I I don't know what's going to happen. 
But if Jesus tarries and does not return, perhaps the Lord would do great things among us. Well, he certainly did that in Philippi. He was very gracious to her. He was very gracious to them. Whatever the particular origins of the church, though, when John wrote the revelation of Jesus Christ, there was, in fact, a thriving body of believers in that place. And to those believers, Jesus identified himself in particular ways. I've been telling you as we've been working through these letters that we really need to pay attention to how Jesus identifies himself to each church because the things he highlights about himself have to do with what he's going to say to them. So, so please keep these things in mind, and, and hopefully, if I don't explicitly bring it up, you'll see connections between how Jesus identifies him and what he has to, uh, identifies himself, and then what he has to say to the church. So, with that, Jesus says to them that he is the Son of God, that he ha- is the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire, and he is the one whose feet are like burnished bronze. This is actually the only time in the book of Revelation where Jesus is referred to by this title, the Son of God. And since Psalm 2 is quoted later in this letter, I I think in verse 27 or 28 in there somewhere, it's pretty likely that he's sort of making what they call an inclusio, sort of a, a parenthesis in the letter where he refers to something in the beginning and something in the end that has to do with everything in between. And when you really look at Psalm 2, what it's about is this this son of God, this Messiah, that's going to inherit the authority uh, from God the Father over all the nations of the earth. So this title, son of God, in this context doesn't have so much to do with the place of Jesus in the Trinity as it has to do with the place of Jesus in the kingdom of God uh, in the world. It has to do with his position of authority. It has to do with the fact that he's the one seated at the right hand of God who has inherited everything that belongs to God even though his father is living and therefore has all power over all things even as God has all power over all things. So just remember this. His ruling authority is, I think, what's being highlighted here. And then secondly, maybe you will remember from chapter 1 Uh, When he says that his eyes are like a flame of fire, he's not saying that his eyes are literally on fire. He's saying that his eyes have the appearance of fire. And as I've meditated on this and done some reading and thinking about this and just searching the scripture itself, I've come to think that this is a a symbol of of, uh, the, the brightness of his eyes. His eyes are not dead, but his eyes are living. They're filled with life. His eyes are are filled with light. His eyes are are expressive of his holiness, his infinite holiness. His eyes are expressive of his uh, penetrating insight into all things. So I think if you were to look into the the flaming eyes of Jesus, what you would feel like is, is like he was looking right through you. Have you ever met somebody like that? Who They just have these eyes. I'm thinking of a, a brother in Christ, actually, that some of you know. He's not at our church now, but he was at this church for some time, and he just had these kind of eyes that you just felt like he was looking right into your soul. Well, I have a feeling that, that, that that's the, 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 the tenor of Jesus' eyes that's being highlighted here. He has piercing, penetrating eyes. He has convicting, affirming, uh, purifying, upbuilding eyes. His eyes like a flame of fire. And this is really going to become important later. And then finally, his feet that are like burnished bronze. That, that term burnished bronze is, is ambiguous in the Greek. 
It's not used elsewhere in the Old in the New Testament. It, it, there's not a lot of references even to it outside the New Testament, so it's a little bit difficult to know what it means. But I think it's pretty clear that that what's being highlighted here is the security of the foundation of His being and of His kingdom. I think it's pretty clear that this is a, a, an allusion to Daniel, where Daniel was talking about this person whose kingdom was partly founded on iron and partly founded on clay so that it seemed strong, but it was actually weak. Well, Jesus is not that way. The feet of Jesus are firmly founded. They are powerful. They are immovable. They are incorruptible. And so this place of authority in which he stands, he, he will stand in that place forever and ever. He is the unrivaled, incorruptible leader of heaven and earth. He is the son of God with eyes that flame like fire and who has irreproachable, uh, um, unovercomable authority in heaven and on earth. He is inconquerable. I think this is what's being highlighted here. And this again is going to become pretty important a little bit later in the letter. Having greeted the church in this fashion, Jesus then begins his words to them with these now familiar words, I know. And again, in Greek, it's just one word. In English, we have to translate it with two words. But don't let the brevity of that speech uh, lead you to think that that word is not important because it's very important. It's repeated seven times. I know, I know, I know. Seven times. Jesus knows his people. He knows the positive things about us. He knows the sinful things about us. He knows his hopes and plans for us. He knows his purposes and promises for us. He, he knows the things that he has to call us to repent from. He knows the things that we need to mature uh, in, the things we need to grow through. He knows everything, beloved. There's nothing about us that he does not know. And so he speaks to his church on the basis of his perfect his eternal, his infinite, his inescapable knowledge. And uh, to begin with, he highlights a few things, positive things about the church of Thyatira that he knows and that he knows well. And I I don't think we need to really spend any time defining these terms. I think they're pretty self-evident, especially for those of us who've been in the world of the Bible for some time. But the order of these things is very important. The order of these things is actually expressive of the gospel. The order of these things shows us how true fruit is born in the kingdom of God. So here, here's the things. He says, here's what I know about you. I know your works, and then he defines them with these terms. I know your love. I know your faith. I know your service. I know your patient endurance. So keep that order in mind. Love, faith, service, patient endurance. We begin with love. Jesus knew that because of his gracious work in their lives, these people loved him, they love one another, and they love the world in the sense of being willing to preach the gospel to the world no matter the cost or consequence. The love of God existed in this church. He knew their love. Flowing out of this love, he also knew their faith. Faith is believing in Jesus and trusting in Jesus, and both of these things are gonna become important later in the letter. And both of these things, again, they flow out of love. They are a fruit of love. Love is prior to faith. Faith is a fruit of love. Please understand, this order is very important. Faith is not something that we conjure up for God. Faith is something that God breeds in us. Faith is something that God teaches us. As the love of God surrounds our lives, 
shapes our lives, transforms our lives. We believe in him and we trust in him. That's what faith is about. And then the third thing that Jesus knew and knew very well was their service. He knew their obedience. He knew their, uh, that, that they expressed their love and their faith through their actions for him, for one another, and toward an unbelieving world. He knew the things that they were doing. He knew that their faith had feet, and he was happy about this. He was glad for them. And finally, he knew their patient endurance. And I think that, that putting that in the fourth position is just so important because to be able to grow in love and faith and service just requires patient endurance, doesn't it? Life sometimes seems very short, very brief. Sometimes it just seems like 10 years just goes by in a flash. Other times it, it just feels like life just drudges on and on and on. And sometimes it can be very difficult. So we need this gift of patient endurance. Without the gift of patient endurance, we're just never going to make it to the end. So again, the order. Love, from love flows uh, faith. From faith comes service. And from service comes patient endurance. Love, faith, service, patient endurance. Jesus knew all these things. He saw this in the church. He was... uh, you know, please hear me in the right way in, in, in saying this. He was proud of them for this. He was affirmative uh, of them for this. He was building the church up for the things that he was working in the church. Like I did with Rachel so many times, he was essentially getting down on his knees and saying, good job, church. Good job. You're understanding the gospel. You're growing in love. You're growing in faith. You're, you're doing good works for the glory of my name and the blessing of others. Not to earn my favor, but because you've already received my favor and you're persevering in, in, in a difficult place. You're persevering in the midst of difficult things and I love you. This is the heart of Jesus. In fact, he, he, he piles on a little bit more and says, here's another thing I know about you. The, the works you're doing now, your latter works, are even greater than the ones you did at first. And I just take this to mean that the works have grown in number, they've grown in intensity, they've grown in focus, they've grown in fruitfulness. There's, there's something about the just the sheer number and the quality of the works that have grown and grown and grown. Like a fruit tree that bears more and more fruit as time goes by, so was the church in Thyatira. Now the Lord is going to say some very difficult things to this church in a minute. And by the end we're going to see that there were actually different groups represented in the church So I I don't think that every single word in this letter is spoken to every single person in the church. Of course, there's application to every person in the church, but there were particular words spoken to particular groups, I think. And Jesus wanted to begin here. He wanted to begin with affirmation. And I actually really took this to heart this week. Just watching how Jesus is speaking to this church taught me a lot about how to parent even our adult child or how to deal with people that I'm discipling or people that I'm mentoring outside the church. It just taught me a lot about how how to be a father, how to be a mentor. Namely, you begin with affirmation and then you move on to rebuke when you need to do that. And if you do the affirmation right, the people receiving your rebuke will understand that your rebuke is actually an act of love as well. They will understand that your rebuke is actually intended to build them up, even as your affirmation is intended to build them up. You know, affirmation can be insincere. Obviously, that's true. But I think the, the more important point I, or, or the more um, pointed point I want to make here 
is that when affirmation is insincere, it's actually destructive. And so affirmation is not always an act of love, but when it comes from Jesus, it's always an act of love. First he builds up, and then he purifies that he might build us up all the more. Oh, beloved, it's so important for us to understand this, because if we don't understand this, we're going to be crushed by the rebuke that's coming. I think if that church in Thyatira did not have the help of the Holy Spirit to understand this basic dynamic, they would have been crushed by the things that Jesus had to say to them. He exhorts us to build us up, he rebukes us to build us up, and let's remember that. Let us have ears to hear everything that the Spirit has to say to the churches. Let us have ears to receive, or, or hearts to receive, everything that the one with the eyes that flame like fire wants to speak into our lives now. Let us have a will to follow in the will and ways of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for the glory of his name and for the blessing of our city. As the great king priest over the church, whose aim it is to purify his people, that we might fulfill our role in the world, Jesus had some very difficult things that he had to say to the church of Thyatira. He had to confront them about some very serious problems that were probably worse than cancer, that were certainly worse than COVID-19. They were a a horrible uh, plague upon the people of God, and there were some of the people of God that were actually responsible for bringing this plague into the church. As pleased as he was with some of them, he was equally displeased with others of them because they were tolerating and actually promoting the practice of idolatry and immorality inside the church. Beloved, it's one thing when the church sits idly by while the world engages in these things and we don't lovingly speak into them. We don't lovingly offer them the alternative of the gospel. We don't lovingly plead with them to come out of the ways of the world and come into the things of God. We don't show them the alternative to the consequences of the things that they're engaged in. That's sad enough. But it's just downright tragic when the church allows these practices to infiltrate its own uh, midst. And when the church tolerates teachers who are actually promoting these very things in the name of Jesus probably using the very words of God and the logic of of the gospel to justify these acts. That is just downright tragic. And that's what was happening in the church of Thyatira. And because that was happening, Jesus had to call his blood-bought people to repentance. He had to take his eyes that flame like fire. He had to speak on the basis of his inalterable authority. He had to say what he was seeing. And he had to call them to repentance. And perhaps he'll call us to repentance today as well. So it is that Jesus said in verse 20, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. The name Jezebel primarily refers to a notorious figure from the Old Testament. You may remember her from 1 Kings 16 to 21. She was the wife of King Ahab, who was a a, a king of the northern um, kingdom of Israel. King Ahab did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. King Ahab led the people of Israel astray, and Queen Jezebel joined him in this. She also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and to be more specific about it, She also led the people of God into idolatry and into adultery. 
She did the very same things. Centuries before the church of Thyatira existed, there was a woman there who had power among the people of God and who was leading them astray as well. She compelled and enabled the people of Israel, the chosen people of God, to worship Baal, to worship a false god, and to commit acts that the Lord had graciously and clearly forbidden to his people in texts like Leviticus chapter 16. In this way, she was actually a tool in the hand of Satan. She was a tool in the hand of the powers of the world. She was one of the causative reasons that the exiling wrath of God came upon the people of Israel and sent them into the, the, the city of Babylon, put them into the, the hands of a power that was much greater than themselves because they had essentially forsaken their God. With this in mind, Jesus used the name Jezebel to refer to another woman in the church of Thyatira who called herself a prophetess. In other words, she appointed herself to a position of spiritual authority in order to establish her authority to teach people and deceive people. I hope you understand that. She called herself a prophetess. She was not appointed by the church to this. She was not recognized by the church as this. She was not in, in any way credentialed or qualified to be uh, claiming to be a prophetess. She named herself this because she had an agenda. And she needed authority in order to enact her agenda. So she said, I'm a prophetess of God. And because she thought of herself as a prophetess, because some people bought into that claim, she began to teach the blood-bought people of God and to seduce them, or to be more literal about the way the Greek reads there, to lead them astray, to mislead them into committing acts that God expressly forbid, namely idolatry and immorality. She led them to engage in pagan worship. She led them to in, indulge their flesh in ways that God had clearly forbidden to the New Testament church, not just to his people of old, but to the New Testament church as well. Jezebel was almost certainly not this woman's given name. It was simply the name that fit well for her from Jesus' point of view, and so Jesus referred to her by this ancient name that the people of God would have known. Much like in the city of Pergamum, you remember where Balaam was mentioned there, that some were following the teaching of Balaam? Well, this doesn't mean that Balaam was literally in the church or some guy named Balaam was in the church or that all the details of the ancient Balaam's teaching were in that church. It just means that, that, that they were following basically the spirit of that ancient teaching. They were falling into an ancient trap. And that's what was happening here as well. Jesus is reaching back to an Old Testament figure to give them perspective on what they were um, doing themselves in their own day. And in doing this, I hope you can understand that, that Jesus is trying to help them see that the crisis that was facing that church at that time was not unique to that church or that time. The, the, this crisis actually is owing to spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places who have been trying to trap the people of God in the same traps for centuries and centuries of time. And now 20 more centuries have passed, and guess what? The same traps have been set for us. Idolatry and immorality look different among us than they looked in Thyatira, but the traps are just the same. The details differ, the traps are just the same, beloved. They're just as dangerous, they're just as deadly, they're just as um, infectious to the people of God. And oh, 
how we would do well to have ears to hear what the Spirit has to say to this church who was in fact being caught in the trap of idolatry and of adultery. This essentially newborn church was falling into traps that had been sent by Satan long ago and that were now being set by Satan through a woman whom Jesus called Jezebel. They had been lovingly and repeatedly warned by the apostles and by the word of God itself to avoid these very things. You may remember in Acts chapter 15 that the apostles conferred about how the Gentiles ought to live with regard to the law. And what they ended up saying is that you're free from the law through Jesus Christ except this, uh, don't engage in idolatry, don't engage in sexual immorality. So these things had been expressly forbidden decades earlier, preached to the church in Thyatira, uh, reaffirmed to the church in Thyatira over and over and over again, but they did not have ears to hear what the Spirit was saying to the churches. They did not have hearts to receive the, the gracious wisdom of their Father. And so they believed a lie, just like Adam and Eve in the garden. They believed a lie, and they sought after other gods, and they indulged their flesh. And they were about to pay a, a pretty high price for that. And so we would do well to take note of their example. They're a cautionary tale for us. At least this group inside that church is a cautionary tale for us. We are susceptible to these traps, beloved. So we would do well to listen well today. Not only was there a group of people getting caught in these traps, but there were others in the church who were tolerating these things. And I'm going to go into some detail in just a little bit so that we can understand how this might happen. But for now, I just want to say that there, there are a couple groups of people here that are instructive to us. Again, I've already said it, but let me just repeat. Some have actually fallen into the trap. Some have bought into Jezebel's lies whatever her real name was. Some have begun to follow her or at least uh, you know, dip their toe in the things that she was teaching. Some had fallen all the way into her teaching. Some would probably uh, uh, identify themselves as her disciples. But others in the church were sitting back and just frankly not saying much about it. They were not confronting it. And while their sin is a, of a different type than her sin, and while their sin is of a different type than the sin of those who are following her, it, it's sin nonetheless. It's a problem nonetheless. So maybe you feel like you actually haven't fallen into these traps of idolatry and adultery, but I wonder if you're sitting silently by when you know that others have. I wonder if you're sitting silently by and not lovingly confronting or bringing somebody else along to help you confront people who need to be confronted in love. Uh, for the sake of their souls, for the sake of their growth, for the sake of their redemption, for the sake of their holiness. I wonder if you're sitting silently by when the Lord wants to use you as a tool. Just something to ponder. Now, I, I do want to press in just a little bit and to, to, into the dynamics of how this might come about because I think it's instructive for us and I think it might help us to have some compassion for how this church fell into this and how we too might fall into this trap. The details are different in our city, but as I said earlier, the traps are just the same. The trade guilds that existed in that day and that essentially built that city and held the majority of power in it, they were not merely business associations, but they were also religious and civic groups who believed that they were blessed by their patron deities uh, in order to be prosperous and gain the wealth that they had gained. So they believed that they were being led by certain gods and that if they would please those gods, they would continue to prosper. 
Okay. So imagine that you work for a manufacturer in Elk River and that that manufacturer is fully convinced that they have to make offerings to their patron deity and they have to do engage in certain acts that will please and honor this deity so that they will garner his or her blessing. Well, that's what was happening in Thyatira. That's what was happening in pretty much every trade guild in the city. They believed that they had patron deities. And several times per year, they would hold festivals to their various gods. They would make offerings to those gods. They would feast to those gods. They would honor their gods. They would seek their favor. Some of them would indulge in sexual acts as part of their worship of the god. Others would just, uh, as part of the feast, basically end up getting intoxicated and end up uh, living loosely. Let's put it that way. One way or the other, they were indulging their flesh and eating food sacrificed to idols. They were basically doing the very things that the people of God were doing at the foot of Mount Sinai as they were falling even into a more ancient trap, right? I mean, Jezebel and Ahab lived so many years before the church in Thyatira, but Moses and Aaron lived quite a few years before that. These are ancient traps, beloved. Very ancient traps. There's nothing new under the sun. And trust me, the traps have been set in Elk River. They've been set in your city. They've been set in your company. They've been set everywhere in this world. So we need to have ears to hear. For the people in Thyatira who believed in Jesus but had jobs there, they, they had to, to be able to, to continue in their employment, right? They had to be able to keep their jobs. This meant that for some of them, they had to attend the feasts or there would be a price to pay, or at least like they felt that they had to. For others of them, maybe they weren't compelled to do it, but they wanted to do it in order to bring the light of Christ there. They wanted to go where unbelievers were, much like their Savior Jesus did, so that they could preach the truth of the gospel. But whatever their motives, they felt drawn into the, to the company activities, so to speak. And while they were there, maybe even with a heart to be a light for Christ, they just get drawn into things that they wish they wouldn't be drawn into. While they're there, they're tempted by things that they wish they wouldn't be tempted by. While they're there, they're talking to people like Jezebel and others who are justifying, indulging in certain things by the gospel itself. Probably saying, look, we're free in Christ. Christ has forgiven all of our sins, so we're free to indulge in all this stuff. In fact, there were some in that day who taught, in order to experience the greatness of the grace of God, we have to indulge in great sin. They actually taught that. So the, there's these, just these natural um, forces at work. There's internal temptation. And then there are deceivers who are using the freedom we have in Jesus to justify the flesh, beloved. And I hope you can see, you know, just have some compassion for these people that it wouldn't be that hard to get drawn into it. And in fact, I wonder if some of you haven't been drawn into similar things. You know, I doubt that any of your corporations are making offerings to false gods, but in a way, aren't they? Their, their gods might have different names, their gods might have different forms, but aren't in many ways companies making offerings to their gods? And aren't they in many ways tempting you with the carrots? of their false gods? Aren't they in many ways encouraging you to indulge your flesh? You know, it's not that big of a deal, right? And it'll help you advance. It'll help you make more money, right? It'll help you make more connections. It'll help you prosper. You might get more chances to share the gospel. Probably none of you are dealing with people who are justifying those kinds of acts by the logic of the gospel itself, but I, I don't think it's that hard to imagine what that would be like. So the, you know, Thyatira was a long time ago, right? White Castle was there a long time ago. 
Uh, in some ways, we're not much like them, but in some ways, we're not different from them at all. And I, I just hope you can have compassion for how the people of God at that time and the people of God uh, in this time can be drawn into these ancient traps. And I hope that you'll grow in wisdom so that you yourself won't be drawn into those traps. You know, and by the way, I'm not going to go into details, but the traps are set there for pastors too. It's not just people who work, you know, in in, uh, secular places, earning their money in secular places. People in the church are tempted by the very same things, are we not? How many stories have you heard of pastors and other people who work for ministries that are drawn into various forms of idolatry and adultery? Beloved, we're all in this same boat together. This trap is set for us all. And we need wisdom, beloved. We need discernment. We need to stay close to Jesus so that this this beautiful flow of love, faith, service, and patient endurance will belong to us rather than temptation and compromise and the chaos that comes from all those things. So again, may we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Giving the, the very serious nature of the issues in the life of this church, giving the very serious nature of idolatry and adultery when it actually infiltrates the inside of the church. It's just stunning to me to hear what Jesus says in verse 21. I know I often say things like that in my sermons, but I uh, always is a strong word, but I feel like I always mean it. And I'm going to tell you right now, I really mean this. I am stunned by verse 21. I mean, when I've really thought about who Jezebel was and what she was doing, what she was responsible for, and how we might feel about that if she was at our church and what we might do if she was at our church, I read verse 21 and just went, wow, Jesus amazes me. I gave her, Jezebel, time to repent. I gave her time to repent. (laughs) It's amazing. But she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. The patience of God with his people is absolutely breathtaking to me. It is inspiring, it's encouraging, it's life-giving, it's very instructive. Beloved, we are so impatient with each other sometimes. We are so impatient from people to leaders and leaders to people and you know, people among people, leaders among leaders. We're so impatient with each other. We would learn so much just by looking to God and his example of patient perseverance with us. I think we would learn so much. We would treat one another better. We would treat one another um, with more love, with more care, with more compassion. And so I pray that we'll do that. Jezebel sadly didn't have a heart to repent, but I'm, I'm, I just want to take a second and just revel in the grace of Jesus that gave her time. He gave her time. I mean, just think about how serious these issues were. Think about if you knew that some leaders in our church were engaging and inspiring others to engage in idolatry and adultery. Wouldn't you be saying to Jesus, take care of this and take care of it now? Well, obviously, Jesus was on this. Obviously, he was calling her to repentance. Obviously, he had given her many opportunities to do that. But she just didn't have a heart for it. And so he gave her time. And I'm just repeating myself now. But that really amazes me. It truly, truly amazes me. But because the Lord loves his people with an everlasting love, the time does come when his patience gives way to his discipline The time does come when his mercy gives way to his wrath. And so because of that, he basically said to Jezebel, that's enough. I'm not going to tolerate this anymore. You know, the Greek text more literally reads here. It says, I gave her time to repent, but she did not desire. She does not desire to repent. She doesn't want to. She doesn't want to let go of her sexual immorality. 
And as I've thought about this, I don't think it was just about the acts themselves. I don't think it was just about the pleasure that she was enjoying. I think it also had to do with the power, with the prestige, with the possessions that were tied up in all of that. Remember, her acts had to do with the trade guilds, most likely. And so it wasn't just about this one thing. It was about a whole group of things that together, all of it was idolatrous, all of it was adulterous. There was a lot there, and Jezebel did not want to lose her life in this earth to gain life in Christ. She just didn't want to. She did not have that desire. So it's not just that she's refusing. I, I just want us to understand she didn't have this desire inside of her heart. And I, I think this helps us to understand why Jesus gave her time, because what he wants from his people is that we would repent from our hearts before he has to lower the boom on us, before he really has to swing the stick of discipline before he really has to cast judgment upon us that we will not be able to escape. And that will be very painful for us. He wants us to be like him. He wants us to obey him from the heart. And when we sin, when we're not like him, when we obey our flesh rather than our Savior, he wants us to remember verses like 1 John 1, 9. Just confess, agree with God that you have sinned and he will cleanse you, he will forgive you, he will change you, he will transform you, he will empower you, he will teach you to walk in his ways. That's what he wants from us. He wants heartfelt repentance and obedience. One of my mentors years ago, a guy named Tom Brindley, who I love in the Lord so much, I remember once I was struggling with some sin and just trying to understand repentance and the grace of God and he just said something to me I've never forgotten. He said, Charlie, repentance is obedience responding to disobedience. He reminded me of C.S. Lewis's very helpful thing that we can, when we sin, we can either fall or we can stumble toward God. And in God's grace, he always makes the stumble toward an option. And a lot of it just depends on our disposition. Will we have a heart toward God even in our sin? Because if we will, the Lord will give us time. He'll give us opportunity to repent, beloved. This is his heart. Come, come to me. Obey me from the heart. Jezebel just didn't have this heart, beloved. He, she just didn't have this heart. So the Lord said, that's enough. Here's what's about to happen now. Three things, very serious things. First of all, Jesus declared that he was going to throw Jezebel onto a sickbed. Now that's, um, I don't know if ironic's the right word, but it's certainly fitting. She loved her bed more than she loved her God. She loved the things that happened on her bed. She loved the power that she gained from that bed. And now the Lord was going to consign her to that bed or another, and she would not be able to escape. This phrase probably means that he was going to strike her with illness. He was going to cause her to be sick. He was going to immobilize her. There are times in all over the Bible, actually, and in other parts of Revelation, we're going to see it, where the Lord strikes his people with pestilence. He strikes his people with disease as a, as a means of disciplining his people. And I've been thinking a lot about this in our current situation. There's so much confusing stuff out there about the coronavirus. I'm not sure what to believe about a lot of different things right now. But I do believe that it's real, and I do believe that in part it's, it is a judgment of God upon our world. I know in the case of the United States, we are by a million miles the number one pur purveyor of pornography in the world. We are the number one purveyor of sexual immorality in the world. And perhaps God has sent a pestilence upon us to discipline us, to wake us up, to cause us to turn back to our God. I remember back in the Hurricane Katrina days, it was just such a, a devastating event in the life of New Orleans. And I, I just remember being blown away and thinking of Revelation when I heard that the very first business to open back up in the downtown part of New Orleans was a strip club. 
And the guy, I, I saw an interview with him. He said, well, I wanted to provide a service for the emergency workers. It's like, well, we never learned. There's this repeated phrase in Revelation, and, and still they would not repent of their evil deeds. God pours his wrath out upon the people. They continue to engage in idolatry and adultery, and the Lord just says, and still they would not repent of their evil deeds. The Lord sometimes will strike people with sickness to get their attention, and that's what his heart was here. This was a very harsh judgment, but her sin was very serious, and it deserved this judgment. Second thing, he said that he was going to throw those who were committing adultery with her into great tribulation, which just means something like overwhelming trouble. He doesn't really define what this trouble is. It could be any number of things, but the details aren't that important. I think the word great is probably more important. Some of you were here a long time ago when we worked our way through the book of Joshua and Judges. I think it was actually Judges, and I remember one of the sermons. I, I don't actually remember the text. I just remember the point of it, that compromise leads to chaos. Compromise leads to chaos, and that, that's what was about to happen in these people's lives. The Lord was going to hand themselves over to their flesh. The Lord was going to, in a sense, hand themselves over to Satan, which is to the, to, to, to the will of him whom they had basically been following. He's going to let them reap what they sowed. He was going to allow the natural judgments of their activity to fall upon them. But he puts this little phrase in there at the end. He says, unless they repent of her works. And, and that phrase just is so instructive for us, beloved. That phrase helps us to see what I was saying at the beginning of this message. Even in his rebuke, the Lord is trying to build us up. Even in the midst of a severe threat against his people, he's trying to call his people into repentance. And he's saying, listen, if you'll hear me now and come out, th- this, will, this tribulation won't come upon you. Or at least it won't come upon you in the force that it was going to come upon you. Come out, my people. Come out, come out, come out. It's just amazing, beloved. I, I hope that we'll hear the weight of the rebuke that Jesus is putting upon his people because if some of you are engaged in these things and you won't come out, the day's going to come where he'll pronounce judgment on you and you will not be able to escape. It's not going to be a pretty day. I'm not saying you're going to lose your salvation. If you're truly in Christ, uh, that's not going to happen. But even for those who are saved, the wrath of the Lord, the, the hot discipline of the Lord, the consuming fire of the Lord can be extremely difficult to endure. And I don't want that for you. The Lord doesn't want that for you. So please hear his call to this church. Hear the grace of his heart unless they repent of her works. Come out, come out. The people being addressed here probably are a group of people who were not fully bought into what Jezebel was doing, but who were basically dipping their toe a bit. They were following to see. They were exploring. They were wondering. They were wandering. They were not being faithful to God, but they probably had not fully come into uh, her teaching either. They were most likely true believers who were just going astray, and they needed a good rebuke from the Lord. That's probably who we're talking about here. And so if you feel like maybe you're part of that camp, then just hear the word of the Lord. And if you feel like you know somebody who might be part of that camp, uh, don't judge them. And maybe don't try to be the voice of the Holy Spirit to them unless he directly instructs you to do that. But pray for them. Pray that they'll have ears to hear. Pray that they will come out. Third, Jesus then declares that he was going to strike Jezebel's children dead. Or to, to read this very literally, the Greek says, I will kill them with death. That's a, that's a very strong thing to say. As for her children, I will kill them with death. I've given a lot of thought to this over this last week. 
And it's possible that he's talking about literal offspring that came from the acts of sexual immorality. But I think the much more probable thing that's going on here is that her children are referring to her disciples. I, I think her children are referring to a group of people who had fully bought into her teaching and were now following her. And I don't think these people actually knew Jesus. They may have been in the church. They were most certainly in the church, or at least hanging around the church and influencing the church. They may have claimed to be Christians. They may have claimed to believe the gospel. They may have even used some of the language and engaged in some of the activities that are associated with believing in the gospel and following in the ways of Jesus. But I don't think they were truly believers. So when Jesus says, I will kill them with death, um, it's possible, this phrase is sometimes actually used in the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek version of the Old Testament, to talk about uh, bringing plague upon people, and that's possible. But I, I think when you look at this, the word death in the book of Revelation, it more often than not refers to the second death. In other words, it refers to the final judgment. It refers to being cast into hell. It refers to being e- eternally separated from God and probably from others. You want to talk about social isolation. I think one of the most fierce things about hell is that people will be socially isolated from their creator and from others who love him and who believe in him. And that will be a horrible punishment. Beloved, I think what's happening here is Jesus is saying to these people, uh, you, you should not play with the living God. And if you continue to play with me, if you continue to indulge in things that I forbid, if you continue to harden your heart and refuse to listen to my gracious pleas to come out of the world and into the life that I have offered through Jesus Christ, then here's what's going to happen to you. You are going to experience the second death. I will kill you with death. I will cause you to fully taste what you're indulging in now and don't even understand. Now, beloved, I know that that's a very severe judgment. I know that that's a a harsh judgment. I know that in our American society, in many Western societies in in general, um, it's it's hard to swallow. It's hard to understand a God who would think like this and who would threaten things like this. And especially when we talk about Jesus Christ in particular, we're not used to him speaking like this, right? I mean, there's a number of people in the world, even believers, who will say that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament and and Jesus are so different. Well, I just wonder if they've ever really thought about texts like this and many others that we're going to see in Revelation. Beloved, the discipline of the Lord is very real. and his, His power over life and death is very real. He is the Son of God whose eyes are like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. He speaks as one with perfect insight. He speaks as one with blazing insight. And he speaks as one with ultimate authority so that when he speaks, nobody will be able to escape. And again, there comes a time when mercy gives way to judgment. There comes a time when warning gives way to wrath. And I think that what he's saying to these people is if you will not repent, you will die. And you won't just die an earthly death, but you will die forever and ever. And I pray that we will take the time to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. I pray that we'll understand that the severity of these judgments are actually helping us to see the sacredness of the holiness of God. I pray that the severity of these judgments will help us to see how seriously God takes acts of idolatry and acts of sexual immorality. 
You know, one of the most insidious things about sexual immorality is that we justify the things we indulge in. It's really not that big of a deal. Oh, I would never say that to my community group, to my family, to whomever, but yeah, it's not that big of a deal. Listen, it's a big deal. And if you don't think it's a big deal, meditate carefully on what's happening here. Sexual immorality matters to God. God created man and woman and marriage and sex for particular reasons, for beautiful reasons, for eternally glorious and satisfying reasons. And when we corrupt what God has created, oh God, it's just such a great insult to him. It's such a great uh, affront to his wisdom, to his creativity, to his beauty, to his very image and beloved. It is deadly serious. These things are serious. They need to be rooted out of the church. So may we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. It is treason to act out against God in these ways. God is more patient with us than we would ever be with one another. And I know he's much more patient with me than I am even with myself. But again, the time does come when warning gives way to wrath and where his fire consume his people. So, beloved, let us not presume upon the grace of God. If you have fallen into some sort of trap of idolatry or adultery, I want to call you by the grace and power of Christ to come out. Jesus is calling you to come out, and I believe that he's leading me today to call you to come out. Do not presume upon the grace of God. Come out. Do not test your Lord and Savior. Come out of the trap. Do not play with his holy fire. And before his wrath descends upon you in a way that you will not escape from it, whatever the details of that are, come out. He's giving you time, just like he gave Jezebel time, just like he gave those who are committing adultery with her time, just like he gave her children time, he is giving you time. So come out. Take advantage of the grace of God. Take advantage of the season of his favor. Come out by his grace and power. If you push the Lord to the point where he, 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 he pronounces judgment upon you, I tell you in love that you will not escape. So come out. Come out. You do not want to know what the fiery wrath of God is really about. You don't want to know that. And I'm just pleading with you as a fellow sinner, as a fellow sufferer, as a brother in Christ who has been receiving these words from Jesus all week long. I'm just passing on to you what the Lord has said to me. Come out. He's given us the command to do this, which means he's also given us the grace and power to do this. We don't come out by our own power, we come out by his power, but we have a part to play. We must come out. Come out of the trap, beloved. Come out. Please notice in verse 23 that Jesus' desire was here in this letter was not simply to speak to the church of Thyatira, but to speak to all the churches in that area, and I believe all the churches that belong to him in all the world and across time. Here's what he says. In light of the judgments that he would pronounce and carry out against certain people in the church of Thyatira, he said, all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. All the churches will know that he is indeed the God whose eyes are like a flame of fire, so that nothing is hidden from his sight. All the churches will know that we will be called to account for our works, 
Of course we're not saved by our works. Of course that's true. But beloved, you need to hear all the words of God. We will be held to account for our works. I will pay each of you. I will give to each of you according to your works. True works can only be wrought in God. Remember, love, faith, service, patient endurance. The service flows out of love and faith. It's a fruit. It's not the root. But beloved, if that fruit doesn't exist in us or a false fruit exists in us, there's a price to be paid. We're going to be called to account for our works. And Jesus graciously wants us to understand that. Don't think that the things you're doing don't matter for good or for bad. They matter. On the encouragement side, they matter. On the warning side, they matter. Our works matter, beloved. So please, please hear the word of the Lord and come out. The Lord wants all his people to know that because he loves us, he will warn us. And and if we will not listen, he will strike us. And even when he strikes us, that his aim is to purify us. And so again, I pray, again, I pray that we will have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. While some in the church of Thyatira were being led astray by Jezebel, and while others of them were most likely fully deceived, there was yet another group. I think these are the ones mainly in view at at the beginning of the letter who were not buying into any of this at all. They were not tolerating her. They were not in any subtle way helping her promote what she was saying. They were trying to stand in her way, I'm sure, in one way, shape, or form. They were people who had not received her teaching, and they were people who did not buy into or know anything about what some in that day called the deep things of Satan. Did a fair amount of research about that. Nobody really knows what that means, but probably it had to do with some secret rites and rituals that some people were teaching in the name of Jesus. My suspicion is that it had to do with this false notion of the gospel, that in order to understand the greatness of the grace of God, you had to indulge in the the fullness of the things of Satan. You had to go into the depths of Satan in order to understand the the depths of God. But but whatever the details, I think the more important point is that there's a group of people who, who just didn't buy into any of that. There was a group of people who, by the grace of God, listened to the word of God and followed the God of the word and, and remained faithful to him. They persevered. They were the ones who were increasing in love, in faith, in service, and in patient endurance. They were the ones who were leading the church by their way of life. I don't know if they had power in the church. What I know is that they were the leaders of the true church. They were the ones who were showing what it looks to live by the love and the grace of God in our Lord Jesus Christ. And for them, Jesus said, look, I'm not going to put any other burden on you, which I I think is just another way of saying I have no judgment to cast upon you. All I have to say to you is what I said in the beginning. Well done, good and faithful servant. Continue to let your latter works exceed the first. Continue to persevere in the faith. Continue to grow in love, in faith, in service. Continue to grow in the things of God. And because, though, they had not finished their race, the the one thing that he does say to them in verse 25 is cling tightly to what you have. That's, That's what that word hold fast means. It means cling tightly to it. Grab on to the things that you have in Christ and don't let go. You don't have to be anxious. You don't have to be worried. You don't have to be afraid of the enemies of the church within or without. Uh, Your God is the Lord God over heaven and earth. You have nothing to fear but cling tightly to him. Oh, beloved, when we let go of Jesus a little bit, when we begin to wander like a, a curious child away from the safety of our Father, oh, we run into so many dangers. We run into so many dangers, and all Jesus is saying is, people, stay close to me. 
Stay close to me. The key to prospering in love, faith, service, and patient endurance is just staying close to Jesus. Right now, I've mentioned this many times. Uh, you're probably getting weary of hearing me say this, but Kim and I are going through some really difficult things in these days. And uh, because of some of those things, we've lost quite a lot of sleep in these days. But but day by day by day, there are some days we wake up just not even sure how we're going to make it through a particular day, but we just keep seeking the Lord together. We keep encouraging each other just to seek the Lord. Even now, even this very night when I'm here recording this message, Kim was writing me to say, don't worry, the Lord will use you in your weakness. The Lord will be with you. She's just encouraging me toward Jesus. And I've been encouraging her toward Jesus too. That's, by the way, what real love looks like. And day by day by day, the Lord has given us everything we need to get through that day. And he's taught us this incredible grace not to be anxious about the next day. Why do you worry about these things, O oh, you of little faith? Look at the lilies of the field. Look at the birds of the air. So stay close to your Savior. Cling tightly to what you have until he comes again. Know that the key to prospering in the things of God is simply staying near to God himself. May, he, may we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches today. For those who overcome, for those who conquer this world, those who conquer their flesh, those who conquer the spiritual forces of, of evil in the heavenly places by the grace and by the power of Jesus Christ, by p- simply putting our faith in him, staying near to him, clinging to him, he makes two absolutely stunning promises to us. And again, I absolutely mean that word. These are breathtaking, unbelievable, stunning promises. First of all, he says, if you overcome, here's what I'm going to do for you. I am going to give you authority over the nations. And you are going to rule over them with irresistible authority. I think that's what it means when he says that as a, as a, a, a vessel is broken into pieces. He's simply saying that you're going to rule with a power that they will not be able to resist. And all the false fortresses that they have set up, you will be able to tear down. Just like somebody smacking a, a vessel with a stick. It won't be that big of a deal. Because you'll be swinging with the power of God and by the will of God. This is what I'm going to grant to you. And then he just throws in this other little thing. Oh, by the way, even as the Father did this for me. So I I don't know about you, but I, I can hardly even take that in. I can hardly even imagine that there will be a day when the people of God will reign with Jesus over all the nations of the earth. It's just hard for me to, to just take that in. Uh, verse 27, I think it is, is, is actually a direct quote from Psalm 2, 8 through 9. Psalm 2 is clearly a messianic psalm that's directed at Jesus. And he, it's the father saying to the son, I am going to give you all the nations and you're going to rule over them with a rod of iron. So here's the picture. Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior, overcame this world through his life, death, burial, resurrection. He overcame the world. When we put our faith in him, we become one with him. And what he's saying is if we overcome by faith, We overcome by clinging to him. We overcome by trusting in him. We overcome by leaning on him and drawing from him, uh, being shaped by his love and empowered by his grace. If we overcome in that way, then he's going to cause us to inherit everything that he inherited. And I just don't even know how to take that grace in. You know, when I was spending some time in California back in February, and, and I think maybe even a little part of March, but it's all a little foggy to me now, I just had so many flashbacks to memories of my childhood and my former life before I was in Christ. 
just things I was involved in, things that I did, things that I lived through that I probably shouldn't have lived through, and I just cannot believe the grace of God in Christ that would save us and then make a promise like this to us. You're going to rule over the nations with me. I just can't believe it. I hope you understand that what Jesus is trying to do is paint an accurate vision of our future so that we'll live now in a way that's pleasing to him and beneficial to our souls and brings a blessing to the nations. I hope you'll understand that he's trying to give us a perspective so that we'll envision everything that's happening now in light of those things. So that we'll envision everything we're enduring now and we'll think about all of the ways we do act and want to act in this world now in light of what's coming then. I hope you'll understand. He's trying to give us a glimpse into the living hope that belongs to us. Part of which is that we're going to rule over the nations. And then he throws this, this little thing. It's almost like an O, by the way. Oh, and I will also give him the morning star. Even just a few days ago, I wasn't really all that sure what that meant. I was still searching the scripture, but then I came across a few texts that helped me understand, and then it was confirmed in all the commentaries that I've been reading. Uh, from Numbers chapter 24 and 1 Peter, I believe it's in chapter 2. Let me just look at my notes real quick. I, it's Numbers 24, 17. It's actually 2 Peter 1, 19. In both of those places, Jesus himself is referred to either as a star or Peter calls him the, the morning star. So I think that this is a metaphor that's referring to Jesus. And then to me, the real clincher is Revelation twenty two sixteen, where Jesus calls himself the bright and morning star. So I think here in chapter 2, he's referring to himself. Chapter 2, verse 28 is a promise that Jesus is going to give the fullness of himself to his people who overcome the world by faith in him. And I don't know what you think about that, but I hope you can understand that there is no greater gift in heaven or on earth than to be given the fullness of Jesus Christ and all he is and all he has and all he does, all he possesses. All he does engage in now and all he will engage in then, he's saying, listen, if you will simply listen to me, if you will follow me, if you will believe me, if you will trust me, if you will cling to me, I will cause you to inherit me. I don't think the metaphor works exactly. The analogy I'm about to make works exactly. But I remember saying to Kim many times when we were young, and just in the early years of our marriage, um, when we talked about various aspects of marriage and just getting used to life together, I told her so many times, Kimmy, what I'm most excited about is that I get you. Of course, there are benefits to marriage, all kinds of benefits, but I get you. It's you that I'm interested in. And you could take all those benefits away, and I would still want you because I love you. Everything else is just a fruit of that, but I love you. And over the years, I've repeated many things like that to her world. I'm not bragging on myself here. I'm trying to help you to understand that, that God gave me insight into his love for us, which helped me to know how to love my wife. And that's what he's saying here. I'm going to give myself to you. Of everything I could give you, I'm going to give you the fullness of myself. And again, I, I, I just feel like I'm repeating myself here a little bit, but I hope you understand. I'm, I'm kind of stumbling over my words because I don't know how to express the beauty of what's here. This is unbelievable, beloved. And if you will take the time to internalize this and believe it, how would it affect your life? If you knew that this is where everything is heading 
How would it change your perspective on the minor things we're having to endure right now as a nation and just as individuals? How would it color everything and give contour and change to everything? Well, meditate on these things, beloved. Ask the Lord to help you believe. Ask the Lord to help you see. Ask the Lord to give you an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And let me close now praying for that one more time. Our God and Father, we thank you for being a God who speaks to your people. We thank you for being a God who speaks words of encouragement to build us up and who speaks words of rebuke to purify us and ultimately to build us up. We thank you, Father, even for speaking words of exceedingly harsh rebuke to those who do not believe in you and who probably some of them will never believe in you and therefore will endure the enduring wrath of God. Lord, it's... it's um, I hesitate to say that because I don't rejoice in your wrath being placed upon anybody. But I thank you for being a God of justice who honors your holiness and who will honor your word. I thank you even for speaking very harsh and difficult words. But Father, to those of us who know you by the grace of God in Christ, oh Lord, I pray that you'd help us to take in all of the aspects of this glorious letter to the church in Thyatira. I pray that you'd help us to hear and receive the encouragements. I pray that you'd help us to hear and receive the warnings and the rebukes and the the call to come out of the world. I I pray that you would help us to hear this plea to cling to you tightly, to be near to you, and in this way to grow in love and faith and service and patient endurance. I pray that you would help us to believe the promises that you make to us, truly stunning promises to be one with you and to rule over the nations with you. Help us, O Lord. We need your help. We need your perspective. And for how you have already worked through this word today and for how you will work it in our lives in the coming weeks and months, we give you our thanks and praise in the matchless and mighty and merciful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. This week in our community group, one of the sisters there uh, shared with me that they really missed uh, me speaking the the blessing over the, the church at the end of last week's message, and for a number of reasons, I just didn't feel that great about tagging it on to the end. Well, she asked me to do a double this week if I could speak the blessing twice. Well, I'm not going to do that, but I, I thought that was, uh, that was kind of funny, and it was a blessing to me to hear her say that, so I thought I'd pass that on to you. So I would say to you, though, it is with particular joy now that I speak the blessing of God over you. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. <laughs> May the glorious Lord Jesus Christ cause his blazing eyes to shine upon you as a people and you as individuals. May his pleasure be upon you. And may he give you all the grace and passion and power you need to seek his heart and to love his people and to do his will in the world until he comes again. I bless you in his mighty name for the glory of his name, for the joy of your souls, for the fruitfulness of your lives, and for the blessing of the nations. May God be with you all now as you sing to the Lord, as you discuss the particulars of the message, and as you pray and call upon the name of Jesus Christ together. God be with you.